exciting times. So, um, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I'm here with Constantine Kissin. Man, thanks very much for joining me. No, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. I mean, uh, since since we booked the interview, uh, you're you've kind of taken off a little bit. I feel like a lot more people are aware of, of you and the podcast and stuff. I think it's probably because of the Sam Harris interview, mm. really. So, yeah, maybe let's start there. Like When when he was saying the crazy things, um, mainly about his sort of being fine with any sort of corruption and just having no interest in examining Hunter Biden's laptop and the story, mm. what was going through your head when he was saying these things? Like... It's hard to, because as an interviewer, your job is just to let the person say their piece. So in that moment, I was thinking, well, this is a strange thing for him to be saying. Uh, and I need to probe and find out what, you know, what he actually thinks. And I kind of think we, we did that. Yeah. Were you sitting there thinking, oh, this is viral content? Not at all. No, I had no idea that it would go viral. Right. I, I just thought it was... Um, I just thought it would annoy people, uh, but I, but it, you can't. I certainly don't have the ability to predict whether something would go viral or not. We've had plenty of other people in trigonometry who've said other things that I've thought, well, oh, maybe this will go viral or this will go viral. Um, I think it, it, timing is a big part of it, and you can't really predict that. Mm. Yeah, I guess it's kind of it's like catching the wave of the internet, like a surfer almost sometimes trying to drop the content at the right time. Yeah. But also, I'll be honest, obviously, you know, doing a show, you want people to watch and listen to it. But I never sit there thinking, what's going to go viral or how can we get loads of clicks for stuff? I th it's, it's a kind of fortunate thing with the position that we're in. I feel pretty stable. Um, and of course, you want to grow and you want to expand and you want to get even more interesting guests for people and, and whatever. But I never feel like I'm I'm here to create viral content i in the moment you i try to just be present to, to what's happening be in the conversation uh ask questions that come up for me uh francis will ask questions that come up for him and you just kind of trust that that's 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 the process and then whatever happens after that is what happens after that you know mm. i was interested to hear when you were on uh on joe rogan with francis mm. recently that your podcast had kind of started out of you but in remain and then being interested to try and understand like the Brexit vote and, and what a lot of people had been thinking. Like mm. why suddenly were so many of our fellow countrymen and women or people, um, why were they so, yeah, why were they so like vehemently in favor of leaving the EU and, and sort of like, yeah, sticking this middle finger up to mm. like the liberal elite? Like mm. was... Prior to that, like investigation of it, did you understand what people meant when they talked about this, like liberal elite? Uh, not particularly. I, I would say I was probably less political at the time. Anyway, it wasn't. I was always interested in politics, but I, I didn't follow it that closely. Um, and I suppose the truth is that had it not been for doing trigonometry, I would unquestionably be considered by people to be part of the liberal elite. You know, uh, if you look at the industry that I come from, the comedy industry, you're you're going well. These are exactly the sort of people that tend to uh, to be part of that world. You know, um, and I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to open my mind beyond that because otherwise, it's uh, you know, I, a friend of mine invited me for for dinner the other day, and we were at Soho House, and I just look around and I go, I don't like any of these people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so I feel like I've kind of been somewhat liberated by the process to be able to make my own mind up about things to choose the people that i want to hang out with uh, and there's in addition to that you know in london uh, and in a few other places there is a kind of counterculture that's forming as well um, which i'm really pleased to be involved in you mm. know uh, whether it's unleashed comedy unleashed uh, which is a comedy club here in london trigonometry there's other things that are currently being worked on that will also be part of that same space uh claire fox who founded the battle of ideas where i've spoken since since we started trigonometry every year it's an opportunity for people to hear a different uh set of takes on many of these issues so um 
I I am grateful to to have been uh, to have had my eyes opened somewhat. Like, do you think that period that sort of eyes opening has continued through yeah COVID and the the pandemic in the last two two and a half years? Like, I, I feel like I feel like perhaps we've been on quite kind of a similar journey in uh-huh. this. In that um, you can read like if you read I don't wouldn't well maybe I'd recommend my first book, but um, it's written from quite a left-wing point of view mm-hmm. in like just very anti-tory um i was very critical of the the brexit campaign mainly because of their their use of um quite predatory data harvesting techniques and those were the things that that concerned me but mm-hmm. it's quite clearly quite left-wing and i was very sort of yeah anti-tory anti-conservative in america and since since then i've been on like a slow period or a slow journey where it's like suddenly i've realized like hang on these people on the right have like okay i still like disagree like fundamentally with a lot of the things they would but a lot of the time i'm like okay no wait maybe there's a point here Mm. like they have they have a point there's like a real there's something real behind it and it's been a really weird journey for me because i've suddenly i finally arrived at this position where my best friend was basically the entire time and he's like josh it took you five years in writing a book to suddenly see i was right so like yeah, do you do you feel like so that? you've made your friend happy at least? Yeah, well, to an extent. Now he's off on some new crazy pursuit that I have to follow. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Well, it's interesting because I I, um, I don't think I was ever massively anti-Tory, uh, but I wasn't pro-Tory. I'd voted Labour and Lib Dem. Uh, I, I voted Lib Dem because actually at the time that I voted for them, they actually stood up for the things that I still believe and believed back then, which mm. is freedom of the individual, freedom of expression, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then when the Lib Dems were no longer in any way a viable party, I started voting for Labour because I was, you know, probably centre left and um, or centre and the Tories didn't seem to me like, I mean, I wasn't going to vote for David Cameron, do you know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah. But uh, I think, and I, I am still not pro-Tory. Uh, if I we talk about the pandemic, if I look back at the last twelve years, uh, I look at back at the last two years. The, the the Conservative Party has done a lot of things that I massively disagree with, including, by the way, on this cultural progressivism stuff that they are simply implementing or allowing to be implemented in every major institution in this country. So I, I really think that if you are looking at it from a party political or a left versus right point of view you're you're going to miss a lot of the nuance of what's happening so um i i think both parties uh are well they're useless in different ways we've got a new prime minister now i always try whatever party they're from to give them a bit of a like a few months bedding in time where i don't jump down the throat for anything they say that they did and actually maybe i've got brain damage but i feel like liz truss has said the right things in her first few days in office um and it remains to be seen whether there's going to be follow-up on that. Um, but it, what what is quite clear to me is that she is a person of principle to some extent. It's funny because she's obviously changed her mind on a lot of things, mm. but I do think it's clear that she has certain principles that she would stick to even if she's under attack for them, which is a break from pretty much everyone we've had in power for the last God knows how many years. So it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, yeah, I, I, I really don't think of myself as a party political person. I get invited to various party conferences and stuff like that, and I always turn it down. I don't want to be a party political person. Mm. I don't want to be involved in any party. I try... Uh, to maintain my own mind and my own neutrality about these things. So I suppose the only way to do it would be to go to all the party <laughs> conferences, but I, I, I have a life. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not that I've suddenly become pro-Tory. It's just yeah. that I've, su- I've suddenly realized that the the, the left parties are, are screwing us just as hard as the right mm. um, and that we've got this really disturbing like fusion of both ideology and um money being funneled into both parties from the same same kinds of people mm. and that and that backs up as well they they push the esg or culture war stuff that, that sort of you you mentioned there but i'd love to know actually do you get concerned that comedians have become like the the most reasonable and smartest people to comment on almost anything these days like it's the more I think about it, the more I'm like, don't people warn about this kind of period of time in a country when, like, Joe Rogan has 
probably the yeah it has the most popular show in the world uh russell brand has got like 5.6 million subscribers on youtube every time i look it goes up um your podcast is becoming bigger and bigger especially here in the uk and you know there's a whole host of, of other people who were where the comedians are the, the the adults in the room like does that worry you for like the state of a country if that's the if that's the case yeah i think so although i disagree with your premise i don't know that we're becoming the adults in the room we're just i think all of us uh, joe uh certainly joe and us uh, out of the people that you mentioned we are trying to just ha have interesting conversations from an honest place um but you're, uh, you're the only like there is there's no like mainstream journalists who are doing that yeah and that is horrifying yeah yeah well the mainstream media have been busily destroying themselves for a very long time much by the way like the comedy industry it's not really comedians that are doing this it's like a few people who happen to be comedians is my uh, interpretation of it i don't think it's being a comedian that makes it more likely i think it's more that uh comedians are naturally people who are quite happy to be center stage they're quite happy to be in front of a camera they have to be able to speak uh, they have to be able to be liked by people, I suppose, as part of it as well. They have to, uh, there has to be a certain likeness to it. So that's kind of, I think, one of the th big shifts that's happened as well is most people don't really want it. They, they'll happily spend three hours listening to something, but I'm not sure they always want it to be, you know, the BBC style of interview. They want there to be a bit of raw to it. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I think it's mostly that. Uh, and yeah, the mainstream media, I think it's a different issue to the one that you're posing here. But yeah, I agree. The mainstream media has been busily destroying themselves for a long time. Uh, and uh, long may it continue. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a boon for anyone attempting to make alternative stuff. Because yeah. the worse they get, the more people turn and, and look at it. I mean, speaking of which, they, uh, do you think anyone is still watching the royal coverage at the minute? The wall-to-wall -wall BBC? Like... <laughs> I haven't been paying attention to it myself, but I bet you there's a, a lot of people that are watching it. Still? Oh, a hundred days. Yeah, no, I know. Th I think, uh, I think you, you, people will laugh and sneer and whatever. And it's only, I wouldn't spend days watching the, the royal stuff around the royal wedding. But I do think, um, particularly in the world, the way that it's going and, and the way that it feels to a lot of people now, which I, I don't think many people now feel that the world is necessarily going to keep getting better all the time, mm. right? I think a lot of people feel that the economy and all sorts of cultural trends are not trending up. They're trending neutrally, if not down to some extent. Um, and in that context, in that environment, you, you we've got a, Euro a war in Europe for the first time in, in, in uh, you know, whatever it is, 80 years. Uh, the economy is, again, after 2008, going down and many other things um the death of the queen after 70 years is one sort of continual factor mm. uh, i think that's why it's been such a big thing um because it's uh i think to a lot of people it kind of feels like the end of an era and i'm not surprised by people watching mm. uh that for a long time i think and but by the way there's another thing to it as well which is i think most of what you see most of what you see and most of what we all see now, we don't live in the real world. Most of us live on the internet, right? Most of what you see is being created or made or recorded in a few metropolitan areas, mm. which are populated by very specific types of people who make very specific types of content, have very specific types of opinions. The rest of the country, yeah, I think is quite different and feels quite differently about the traditional institutions of this country, the traditional ways of being in this country and so on. So I think you're seeing that outpouring, which is, uh, I think just people like me and you who, who live and work and create and whatever in London, we kind of have our own slant on it. I'm not surprised by, by the outpouring at all. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised mostly by the queue. I can't believe people are wait that long. I mean, I can Part of me can, mm. but part of me is looking at being like, like I, I looked this morning and it was it was five miles long with an estimated wait time of 14 hours. 
Like, what? And people are still joining the freaking queue. Yeah, well, there's got to be a part of that, which is like, oh, wow, there's that many people doing it. Okay, it's 14 hours. Well, that's less like a cool thing to do. That's like a cool thing I can tell my grandchildren. I queued for 17 hours or whatever it is. I suspect there's a part of that. Like, once it gets past a certain point, the the length of the queue is no longer a deterrent for a lot of people. It actually <laughs> attracts them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but no, I, I've got, as I said before, I've got a I've got a life, uh, so I, I I I wouldn't do that. But uh, at the same time, I, like I said, I think it was a really important moment, and I think a lot of people rightly feel that the Queen was somebody who was worthy of honouring in the way that she's being honoured, because this is someone who served this country in a way that I don't think anyone from our generation is gonna be able to do really no. uh we were all we're just different breeds of people now and she did that for 70 years with a tremendous amount of dignity and uh self-restraint you know th this is yeah, the she thing didn't comment in public that's one nice thing about her right and, and that's actually quite hard to do nowadays i think mm. so uh yeah I, i'm i'm I, I get why people feel as strongly as they do mm. see like i have and I was talking to Sonia Poulton about this on her morning show today. Right. About, and she asked me my, my, what my feelings are on the monarchy. I was like, well, you know, I think there's there's a reasonable, there's 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 a lot to be said for not having an elected, politicized head of state. There's there's something to be said for that. It's it's, I think it's useful in terms of having one thing that represents the country that you don't vote for and therefore it doesn't become as polarized especially in the climate we're in right now that seems quite an attractive mm -hmm. thing but at the same time i'm like oh, she paid andrew's fucking legal legal uh payoff to uh virginia jeffrey and they're really good friends with jimmy savile her and prince philip and there's some really disturbing stories about him sneaking around buckingham palace with like young girls and i'm like oh it's just like every time I think about the thing that you're talking about, this how she served the country with dignity mm. and how she, you know, didn't speak out, how she did like and, and you know, there's a lot of things to admire about the job that she did. The same time, like in the back of my head, there's all these gnawing things. It's just like she's fine with like all of the awful things that those people did. Mm. Including her I know it's her son, but still Yeah, I, I, I don't know that she was fine with it. Mm. Uh but I I hear you. There's there's a compromising thing there. Look, the, I'll be honest with you. The monarchy is not something I I care passionately about. It's not something I think a lot about. Mm -hmm. the, the, my perspective on the Queen was this is someone who who served the country for a long time. Um, I don't disagree with you that the way Prince Andrew was treated is not the way he should have been. Mm -hmm. You know, people who uh, are credibly suspected of crimes of that nature should be properly investigated uh and go to prison mm. uh but i i don't put that down to the queen uh and I, I don't know much about the jimmy savile thing it seems to me quite a lot of people were duped by his behavior yeah uh, so if we're gonna go down the list there's quite a lot of people who are gonna be discredited um, well yeah i mean i'd be happy to discredit each and every one of yeah them yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely but i'm just saying not everybody necessarily knew or was complicit no but i don't know that much about it no i i, I have to agree with you there so in terms of people you must yeah, agree with me well yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> um in terms in terms of people that you've had on the show or people that you've maybe entertained having on the show who's been the person who i don't know you've maybe mentioned to someone before that you oh i've got this interview lined up with this person like, who's the person you've got the most pushback on or from someone saying oh you shouldn't speak to him or you shouldn't speak to her or don't speak to them mm. Well, I never really have those conversations with people like before we have someone on, mm. you know, we decide internally who, who we're going to have on. So I never have the conversation before. So I, I guess if you're asking who have we got the most shit for having on, um, it kind of depends because everybody's got their own thing, haven't they? Like there are people who are really upset that we had Posey Parker on, uh, who is a gender critical uh, campaigner for women's rights and she's very critical of elements of transgender ideology there'll be people who don't like the fact that we had carl benjamin on uh formerly sargon of a cad um yeah uh, there'll be people who are angry we had sam harris on i suppose too <laughs> um so yeah i i the thing is what initially when you start out that those questions are really like important and you you think about it a lot mm. but as you find your feet in doing what you do actually 
the reaction of people that I've never met sort of matters a lot less to me. Do you know what I mean? It's like if I was walking down the street and some person came up to me and was trying to give me feedback on my clothes or whatever, I'd be like, well, I don't really care what you think. And it's the same with with a show because you'll find this as, as you get bigger and uh, and you have a bigger audience you you're no longer if even if you ever were you're no longer even to able to maintain the illusion mm. of pleasing all the people all of the time so at the end of the day you kind of have to go back to to first principles and the first principle is you started this because you wanted to have interesting conversations with people that you find interesting mm. and then clearly there's an audience out there for that and that's all that matters really yeah you know what i mean yeah really although i do i do have quite a lot of fun laughing at the comment section sometimes like yeah. especially if someone's really like go, go, get uh, going at me yeah i'll immediately be on the phone to my friend and be like oh you gotta get in the comments yeah, oh, oh yeah yeah <laughs> I, I i used to totally love that stuff and the, the the thing that happens over time though is you've got much more interesting things to do so i tend to have a fun like a scroll through the comments every now and again just to like entertain myself and also you know the truth is um in in addition to the, what is 99 percent of comments which is inane dribble mm. there is one percent of people who've actually put something thoughtful in and made a comment that is actually worth reading too and i tend to be more interested in those nowadays but i i know you know the process that you're talking about it, it's a very natural process for going from being basically not being a public person to being a public person and what happens is you're sort of you're navigating that shift by suddenly realizing that a lot of people now have an opinion about you and internally that's quite difficult to process your entire biology is kind of designed to not have you be the person that everyone's looking at mm. that's why that's why everyone has a fear of public speaking because historically speaking in you know in sort of uh, evolutionary times uh, what does evolution psychologists call it? But an ancestral environment, I think, is what they call it. Basically, when you're living in a small tribe of 150 people, if you found yourself in a position where the entire tribe was looking at you in silence, mm. that usually would not end well unless you were the leader of the tribe, which is one of the reasons people want to be mm. there. You see what I mean? So what you're going through is is the process that we all go through and i'm still going through as well which is how do you deal with the fact that thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people now have an opinion about you that you know you don't control you're not able to correct even if it's misrepresentative of your position and and blah 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 and it's uh yeah it, it, it's exciting and it sucks all at once you just kind of have to go through it do you get recognized much like out in a boat piece? I get recognized a lot more if I'm with Francis. He has a much more distinctive face. Uh, and we together Yeah, people like yeah. yeah. So he's got the, the the bad end of the stick, unfortunately, on that. He gets recognized all the time. Whereas I get recognized occasionally, which I enjoy. I, it's not that I don't enjoy people having a chat and saying, oh, I love your show or whatever. I, but I wouldn't enjoy it if it happened like every time I left the house. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's levels to it, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, so I am quite keen to remain uh, as anonymous as you can be when your entire life depends on being recognized, you know, <laughs> tell people knowing what you do. But I, I, you know, I'm grateful, I guess, is that like the age of the mass celebrities over. Do you know what I mean? Like those superstar celebrities that used to be the only type of celebrity, really. Mm. Um, there's only going to be a small number of them going forward and it's all going to be, you know, niche. And, yeah. I, and I'm, I'm really pleased about that. I, um, I like, that's one thing that meeting a few of the more famous people in, in, on our US trip reminded me of is like, I don't want to be that famous. You know, was there, was there like a moment where there was like someone getting, I don't know, swamped by people or something? It wasn't swamped, but just, I, I can't say specifically cause it's other people's private stuff, but, yeah. but it's like you suddenly become aware that for a lot of those guys, security is a big issue. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like somebody might look outside and go, there's a car waiting. Mm. I don't know what that car is. And then like they send three bodyguards out to go and investigate it or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to have to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like if you're, if you're at the point where you've got bodyguards, that's going to get invasive. On the one hand, on the other hand in America, well, what are you going to do? There's, uh, every idiot around you has got a gun. Yeah. So you kind of need the bodyguards and you need that, you know. So there, there's levels and I'm quite happy not to be going to that level, mm. you know. 
Yeah. I suppose it's also an America thing as well, because in Britain, I suspect it's a little bit easier. People people behave in different ways. Um, but yeah, I'm not that keen uh, on that. I, I do enjoy talking to people, though. And, th- and that's the other thing as well, is like um, the level of recognition that we currently have. I only ever get people, people who like me. Because, yeah, because they like you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which I suspect changes over over scale. You know yeah. what I mean? So having to deal with some dickhead coming up to me in the street when I'm going for a walk with my wife and son, like that's not really what I particularly am interested in. Yeah. Although that said, like sometimes it can scale positively, isn't it? Like um, you've seen that. I mean, maybe you've seen the clip of Jordan Peterson talking about what it's like when I'm sure he's talked about this lots of times, but what it's like to be him it's mm. like in every every city and every street someone comes up to me and starts telling me how like you know they've turned their life around and you know they share some like intimately like intimate details with him because they've listened to him for so many hours and they feel like they can share it mm. with him and he, someone was like, like someone was like what's that like and he was like it's overwhelming it's 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 both like amazing and terrible all at the same time mm. It's got to be, got to be like, yeah, he definitely suffers a different level. Of yeah, well, thankfully, I haven't changed anyone's life. So that's, I don't have that problem. <laughs> well, keep that up. <laughs> I'm going to keep that up. I'm just going to do stupid dick jokes on the internet. Uh, are you going to see? I've got tickets tonight for, for Pearson. Actually. Yeah, I, I won't be seeing the show, but I'll, I'll, we're, we're, we're doing stuff later in the week that I'll get to see him a couple of times. Oh, okay. Yeah. You got you got him coming on the podcast? No, 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 no. We've had him on a couple of times and... Um, uh, we we're not doing anything with him on his uh, this trip, but we'll just I'll, I'll I'll get to see him. Oh, that's okay. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah. Smart, smart guy. I'm very excited. Yeah. Later You'll on. have a great time, though. I'm sure. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Because I've I've been encouraged to delve into the Bible by a friend of mine. Because uh-huh. uh, we have, keep having arguments about religion. And he's like, you can't have this because it comes down to a point. He's like, you can't argue with me because you haven't read it. I'm like, fine, right? Let me read it. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, in the early books. So he is religious, and you're not. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what I really truly believe. I think there's a God. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. The there's a lot of arguments that I like. have. You worked out the sex of the God yet? Um, I'd say it was gender identity, probably non-binary, non-binary. Yeah, mm. good good answer. Yeah, <laughs> very inclusive. Yes, exactly. Well, I mean, I wouldn't want to leave someone out. Like ninety nine point nine percent of people, no, that no. Would, that would be foolish. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, your book then, an immigrant's love letter to the West. Mm-hmm. Why you know the West is a capitalist patriarchal in, in, you know former empire Brilliant, colonial yeah we're we're you <laughs> were just the worst people in the world because no other country ever had an empire obviously or slavery or slavery or um sort of did any awful things in their past thank mm-hmm. so britain and oh, well, you can include america we're uniquely awful so why would you love the cultures that have you know emanated from yeah not maybe not just these places but you know the west is generally america centric so mm. why do you why why do you love these awful things well for precisely the the reasons that you mocked with your ironic introduction there which is that the idea that we are uniquely evil in any way is complete bullshit uh we are the most progressive people in the history of the world uh the west uh for all its many flaws and they're, they're multiple and i talk as you know about some of them in the book too um the the west is the the one uh, civilization that ended slavery and forced others to end slavery when they were really not that keen to do so. Um, and on every other measure, whether it's the treatment of women, the treatment of minorities, the treatment of immigrants, the treatment of uh, different ethnic and religious groups, uh, the West is head and shoulders above uh, not only uh, any historical period, but but also any geographical area in the world. This is kind of what I wanted to explain to people is we are unique in the world's history and we're unique in the world today uh, in how progressive we are and all those things and so to to spend years as we have done beating ourselves up about uh, how not quite sufficiently progressive we are seems to me to be very misguided and uh, it leads to it leads to what uh, we just had Frank Ferradi on trigonometry. We haven't released it yet, but he, he calls it, uh, I really like this term, he, he calls it moral disarmament. And I, I would add to that moral unilateral disarmament where you go, well, we no longer 
have any belief that we are actually good people. We no longer believe that our values are good values, that our values matter, that uh, the way we do things is actually worth sharing with others, that, uh, you know, when a country in Eastern Europe, for example, seeks to be independent and democratic and move in a more westward direction, uh, a lot of people don't understand that there's a moral argument to be involved in that situation and to support those people in their desire to be as free and as prosperous as we are mm. um, because everything is considered to be just simply an issue of uh, money. Who are we to impose something on other people, mm. especially when it's not in our own financial best interest? Um, and this moral unilateral disarmament is a direct product of the self-loathing that the West has been encouraged to adopt by the very people who are now invading countries in Eastern Europe. Yeah. Like, what, why do you think it is that, that, that we have this, like, really strange idea that, like, oh, the French aren't racist or the Austrians aren't racist or the Italians aren't racist? I like, can think of at least one Austrian who was pretty racist. I can think of many. I know some. Yeah. <laughs> like... I, I lived there for the five winter seasons mm. there. I know that like, I love the people, love the country, but you know, they're pretty racist mm. sometimes. Like this, it's just, I mean, and they laugh about it. They're aware of it. Like, what, what do you think it is that, that makes us feel that, that it is so bad here? Cause this was one of the things that I discovered when I was writing my book was that like Britain is like the, in terms of attitudes to immigrants, like the most accepting in the whole of Europe and the whole world. Mm. I was blown away and I was like, hang on, so we're the racists. Like, wh why, why is that like not, you know, blatantly obvious? Well, for precisely the reason that you gave, which is we are not racist and it's only people who are not racist that will be asking these questions of themselves. People who are racist don't give a shit about being accused of being racist. If you say to Russians you're racist, they don't give a shit right it's only prosperous comfortable western people who have an ethnically diverse country because they have allowed lots of people to come here right if you look around london none, almost none of the people are, who are here who look different to uh, a, a british white british person none of those people are here as a result of being brought here as slaves mm. right uh, so all of the people who live here are people who've come here as immigrants they've been allowed to come. I'm not saying they were always treated the way that they should have been, uh, but they wouldn't have been treated that well in any other country they would have gone to at that time either. So um, it's precisely because that we've made so much progress on these issues that we now are victims of our own success. Uh, and, uh, and by the way, you know, I always say this, uh, human beings respond to incentives. And if you are a person who uh, wants to have a media career, and a person who happens to come from a minority background, uh, or it's not just a media career, it's a comedy career, it's a career in anything that's public facing or related to one of these institutions, it is much better uh, for you to be a victim than, a, than someone who says, actually, I reject all of this. I reject the idea that Britain's... So, for example, my position in the comedy industry is essentially as someone who is hated and, uh, you know, suspect, to a lot of people in the comedy industry. Um, whereas someone who goes on stage every night and complains about how they're oppressed is worshipped and given opportunities and whatever. And I don't say that in any sort of like, oh, I didn't get the opportunities I deserve sort of way. I, I couldn't really care less at this point. I've made, I pushed me in the direction that I needed to be pushed to create my own thing and be successful with it. But that's the environment we operate in where you are rewarded for complaining mm. And you are punished for being stoic and for actually going, no, no, if you want to make something of yourself, whatever your skin color, whatever your sex, whatever your sexuality, whatever your background, the best place to do that is in a Western Anglosphere country. Mm. That's the best place to succeed, to thrive, to get better, to raise your children, whatever. Um, and it's that message that's unpopular because we incentivize victimhood. Mm. Like there's, I don't know if you saw the clip of um, from Eddie Dempsey that was doing mm -hmm. the rounds like last week or so, or so, and he was basically making the accusation that the Labour Party and the left 
have made this calculation that if they focus on like these like race-based identity-based politics that they can capture like a certain portion of the working class plus like a portion of the middle class and then like a group of yeah non-white voters and that they've just calculated that that's enough to get them into power mm. like do you think that it is a focused calculation on on these kind of politics and do you think that they actually think that's a good idea or is this just them sort of trying to appease you know whatever politically correct ideals they think people have i give them less credit than that if i'm honest with you josh i think i don't think they sat down and when this is what we need to do because if they did do that they never would have done it in the first place because uh, in terms of the percentages and in terms of how people actually vote, that makes absolutely zero sense. Because what you're talking about, it's an American idea. This comes from America where it makes a little bit more sense because they have a much more diverse uh, ethnically country, right? So in this country, I think black people are only about 3% of the population. Uh, we have a much larger in percentage terms Muslim population in this country than they do in America. But um, if you look at the statistics, that just that math doesn't work in the UK. Um, if you abandon uh, the working class in favor of university graduates and ethnic minorities, you're not going to have an electoral coalition that's big enough. Uh, which is why I say if they'd actually sat down and thought it through, they'd never do it. Uh, they're doing it for ideological reasons. They believe that it is the morally correct thing to do to privilege people who are quote-unquote previously oppressed uh, and they also fear and despise and resent the working class for their backward uh, opinions for their inability to get with the program for the fact that they don't want uncontrolled unlimited immigration into britain and so on and so forth these are problems for them they're moral problems they're not they're not uh, factual or whatever it's a moral issue to them the fact that these people and you know i'm sure you've read jonathan Haidt's work this is one of the things he talks about the the um the thing that is simultaneously the left's greatest strengths and greatest weakness is its obsession with emotion and morality um which makes them willing to look after people who need looking after in in situations where the right might not want to do it but the downside of that is uh, they, they uh, are more interested in ideology often than they are in, in pragmatic solutions. The right has its own version of this, of course, too. But uh, on the left, I just think it's ideological for them. They know what the morally correct thing to do is. Uh, and they, that, that is to look after the oppressed, who they've designated oppressed. Um, and uh, other middle class university graduates like them who all think the right thing and have the right opinions. Mm. Like there's been, and I've listened to quite a lot of people talking about the sort of the reasons for the the growth of this, yeah, sort of very left-wing neo-Marxist ideology, especially amongst universities, then through political parties. You can argue a lot of the, the sort of more cultural side of it has gone through both parties and just like most of the elite, however you want to define that. Mm. But... I've heard a lot of people with very different opinions on on why this why this has been pushed essentially, or why it's become successful and so widespread, or at least seemingly. Mm -hmm. And the argument that I that was most shocking, but also almost most seemed to make the most sense to me, was the one I think it was made by Matt Walsh, where he says that they are attempting to sever the next generation from their parents ideologically so that they live in such a different world that they will reject the world of their parents entirely and that they can then build their own new sort of like i don't know proto-communist downtown mm. portland kind of state mm. do you think that's an insane proposition like um, what's your uh, like i don't think it's an insane proposition but i don't think it's accurate um i think if you want the next generation to separate themselves from the parents world you just need to let them grow up and they're going to do it anyway <laughs> i mean that's what children always do right uh, i just I, I think they're much um first of all it's never going to be one argument i think it's a it's a conf conflagration of different things uh, we interviewed a woman called mary eberstad who uh, wrote a book called uh, Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Gave Us Identity Politics. And her argument is that the, cre the technological creations of the sexual revolution, which is essentially the pill, allowed uh, 
modes of behavior that previously would have been impossible and it separated sex from commitment and so this has advantaged men some men and disadvantaged women and particularly children because it's led to the breakdown of the family and we've seen an explosion in single parenthood um, and i always have to say this because people are you know they're unwilling to to hear the intention behind what i'm saying I'm not blaming single parents, single pa like I've just had, a, my wife and I just had a baby four months ago. I cannot imagine raising that child by myself or my wife, who's a brilliant mum, raising that child by herself. It is hard. So I'm not suggesting that those people aren't doing their best and aren't doing a good job. But the facts are very clear the children who grow up in a single parent environment do way worse at school they're far more likely to end up in prison they're far more likely to end up in drug abuse they're far more likely to become alcoholics on almost every measure of social well-being they score far lower than than children uh, who had two parents on average mm. on average so the breakdown of the family leads to a lot of unhappy people Right. And unhappy people are not the sort of people who are likely to uh, want to support the status quo because they're unhappy. Mm. And particularly if you're unhappy in, in the modern world, uh, you've got the tools to project your unhappiness onto the world much more than you would have done in the past. Because there's other people who are unhappy who are all telling you the same thing, which is it's not your fault. It's, the fact that you're unhappy is not because you haven't worked hard enough. It's not because you haven't tried to improve your life circumstances. It's not because you haven't done enough of personal development or therapy or whatever it is to improve your mindset to succeed. It's not because of the choices that you've made. It's not because the financial decisions you've made are the consequences of your actions and what you haven't learned yet and whatever. No, no, it's the fault of the system. It's the patriarchy. It's the this, it's the that, it's the whatever. And so you've got uh, a, a group of people who, who are looking out into the world and they are seeking an explanation for why they feel miserable, right? And they are finding other people who have that same eternal feeling. I mean, you talk about Portland and Antifa and whatever. Look at the mugshots, Andy No post mugshots of, of Antifa mm -hmm. who, members who are getting arrested for rioting, whatever. Look at their faces. Are those the, ha the faces of happy people who, who are living in a stable environment with a, a family and a couple of kids. No, these, these are not happy people. And so the sexual revolution is part of that. Um, then you add on top of that in this country, the housing crisis, the fact that young people really struggle to pair up and, and find somewhere to live. And as you know, I talk about this in, in the book mm -hmm. quite a lot. It's really important. If you want people to be grounded, and I've experienced this in the last few months, uh, there's nothing that makes you collide with reality more than having a child. Because whatever bullshit ideas you had in your head about what's true and what's not, oh, men and women, there's no difference. Really? Yeah. Right. Look at a baby. Look at a female baby. Look at a male baby. The difference is pretty clear, right? <laughs> and then it's, it's yeah. a, and all sorts of other things like that. Um, whereas if we all live on, on the internet, on our phones, in a shared, in a flat share somewhere in the outskirts of London, and we don't actually interact with real things in the real world. We're just on our social devices. Well, on the internet, the idea that there's no difference between men and women makes perfect sense, yeah. right? Because equality, man, well, why wouldn't you want equality? It's only when you're confronted with reality that you suddenly start to realize that this is happening. This is one of the interesting things that's, that's changing in the landscape. We had Louise Perry on the show and this is very much her argument, that we've come to a position where this endless pursuit of sexual liberation, sexual freedom and whatever has allowed people to become divorced from the reality of things. And we are now starting to see the costs of those ideological obsessions be borne by the very people who've been forced to imbibe them. And, and you're going to see, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 39. For our generation, there is a large cohort of women who've come to a point if they're say my age and they haven't made certain decisions that they would have needed to have made to have the things that they'd want to have they're starting to realize actually <clears throat> this really wasn't all that it was made out to be yeah yeah live your best life isn't always the best advice yeah um i'm 28 i know i look kind of old to the ski seasons <laughs> you're irish mate you guys are all like that yeah well that's also true long hardened life of, of being oppressed by the british yes 
<laughs> I have that discussion frequently with um, really good friends of mine. Um, I'm like, I don't feel oppressed. And they're like, well, you know, you're Protestant. Well, see, so, but, <laughs> like, yeah, but just like, you know, I actually like, I just didn't like, I mean, you know, you could make the case, right. That because of, I don't know, some, there were some slights that I had in my childhood because of, um, you know, growing up in Northern Ireland. It's just like, really? I, I mean, I don't, I don't think so. Like I, I got to go to a pretty good school. Like Northern Ireland's got the best education system in the UK. I'm pretty pleased about that. Um, got smaller class sizes on average. Um, I do a grammar school. That was great. Well, you see, there's a difference between being disadvantaged and being oppressed. Mm. I have no doubt that your generation would have obviously grown up with stories from your family and your parents of all the difficult things that happened in Ireland and mm. partly due to British rule, no doubt, right? Um, but, but the question of whether you were oppressed and whether you're disadvantaged are completely separate. There are many ways in which I've been disadvantaged in my life. There are many ways in which I've been privileged in my life, but it's uh, oppression require. It takes two to tango. You have to be want. You have to want to describe yourself in that way. Uh, the you know I have I have this uh, argument with a friend of mine who is believe it or not even shorter than me. He's like five four or something like that, and he's very much on board with all of the stuff oppression and people being disadvantaged. And I said to him, "Well, what about you? You're five foot four. We know, statistically speaking, heightism is a massive thing in society, particularly for men. Mm. We know that like ninety three percent of top uh, CEOs in this country are all over six foot. Mm. Uh, we know blah blah all sorts of statistics about it. Anyone? Yeah, but." You know, being short made me who I am. I had to deal with this and I had to deal with that. And so at an individual level, people understand that even the difficulties you experience will sometimes be the forces that shape you into being the person who is successful in some way. Um, so oppression requires you to want to be oppressed. Mm. Yeah, and I just don't like that attitude. Well, then exactly. You start, you know, then you're starting with like, oh, well, my feet are tied together, so I can't run, mm. you know whilst the knots aren't actually tied. It's it's a strange position to be in sometimes. I mean, we have some great discussions with them about it, but they've never managed to convince me that I've been oppressed. Mm. So, like you said something that, like a little while ago there, um, it was about, um, it's not your fault. It's not your fault that you've had these problems. It's not your fault that, you know, your life's not exactly where it, what you want it to be. It's like, you're perfect the way you are. Like, just accept who you are and be that person and everything will be okay. There'll be sunshine and rainbows and all the doors in the world will open to you. Hashtag body positivity. Hashtag body positivity. Mm. Exactly. Hash, yeah. And... See, until I'd, I'd listened to a few Jordan Peterson lectures, I don't know how many years ago this was, four or five years ago, mm. I had never heard someone speak the words, it was like, you could be better. Mm. I had never heard that. Like, wow. I'd never heard. It wasn't that like people hadn't told me, so oh, you could do great things, right? But I just, no one had said, yeah, and you, you are the person who has to like, you know, get your shit together mm -hmm. and do the things that you're capable of. Mm. And it strikes me that like the amount of people who just believe you's like, oh, just love yourself mm. that that makes them yeah, turn to this, well, you know, it's it's not my fault then. What what do you think makes that so pervasive in, in like society these days? It's a brilliant like, excuse. It's a brilliant excuse yeah, but, for you know, not that, doing it. That anything. excuse could have been there for centuries. And it has been. But like I don't feel like it's been used. <laughs> well, we had a different culture uh only a few decades ago we had the culture was you get on with it right um and that stoicism that people were encouraged had its trade-offs negative trade-offs too where people who were you know who actually needed help were just not given the help and told you know oh you got you can't read well it's because you're stupid it's not because you've got dyslexia or whatever right so in some ways this culture shift has been positive to some extent but it's all about overreach and the pendulum is always swung quite a lot um yeah to be honest with you i don't think that i ever really heard that said to me either until i got in my 20s um i got into personal development a lot mm. and there i can't remember who said it to me but it was someone said why be yourself when you could be someone actually worthwhile you know and i i've always found that a really important message you know being yourself doesn't mean that you don't need to improve being yourself means being more authentic but being more authentic requires you to improve all the time because 
the inauthenticity that we all struggle with sometimes is a product of the fact that we haven't let go of the desire to impress other people or to, to, to look a certain way or to behave a certain way for other people, not for us. So I, I, just, I think it's always been an issue for people. Um, and that's why figures like Jordan and, and others are really important because young people need to be told all the time, like, it's not about you not being good enough. It's, but what, in what other area would you think that's that like, who, who looks at a, at a 17 year old footballer and goes, yeah, you don't need to learn anything. Yeah, yeah. You're perfect. You're perfect. Just, 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 yeah. Don't, don't, don't work on your game. Don't try and be better. Don't, don't exercise more. Don't try to look after your diet. Don't do yoga. So you extend your career. Don't study film. So you get better. Don't work on, on your weaknesses. Don't, you know, don't do weights. Who says that? No one does, right? We all know. It's so absurd when you put it like that. Man. But that's but that's that's the society we live in. So the way I always thought about it, and that's why I've always been interested in personal development. I'm less interested in therapy because it's not really the way that I frame these things for me. I'm interested in performance. I'm interested in creating things. I'm interested in building things. I'm interested in improving my own skill set uh, in order to do more of the things that I want to do out there in the world. And in order to do that. Well, obviously, I need to be better. Otherwise, I wouldn't be where I am, mm. right? Like, we are all exactly where we are based on the things that we are doing and not doing. That, you know, now, that's a mindset. That's not the truth. Yeah. That's a mindset, right? Because the truth is, of course, you are where you are due to the circumstances of your life. You were born in a certain place and you got a certain education and you met or didn't meet certain people and you had certain parents or didn't and blah, 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 blah. Your life is not purely under your control. But guess what? You can only control the part of it that you control. And the only way your life is going to change in a, in a significant way and you're going to feel in control of your life is if you take charge of that and you work on it for yourself. That's why... You know, I've always not only sought to improve for myself, but in terms of trigonometry now, we have uh, me, Francis, and our produ executive producer, Anton, who are like the core team who started it, really. And then we have a bunch of other people that work with us. And I'm always uh, in from a position of, you know, being forced essentially into a position of leadership in that way. I'm always not only thinking about how do I improve, I'm always thinking about how do I support this person in opening up more and being more of themselves and thriving and succeeding. And uh, there will come a point where, uh, you know, part of the journey for somebody who's working with us will be for them actually to step up by leaving trigonometry. Mm. And I'd like to hope that in that situation, I would be there for them to support them in doing that. Because to me, that's the most important thing in any human being's life is that growth and that progress and that development. And I wouldn't want to stand in someone's way if, if the next step for them was to move away from being part of my team. Mm. You know, who do you, who do you look at for like inspiration or or you know ways to try and improve yourself at this point or like or in terms of maybe even like management, like mm. trying to be that leader? Like Dana who, White. Dana White. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I, I like that guy because I think he's built something gigantic from nothing, literally nothing. Yeah. Um, I like him because of his attitude. He just literally doesn't give a shit. Um, I, I, I think that he also, um, he has a, like a, a hard-nosed business side to him, but there's also a, a compassionate side to him as well from the way I've seen that he treats his staff and the, the types of people that he employs and a, a bunch of behind-the-scenes stuff. I've never met him, but from, from what I gather. So he combines being a ruthless businessman with actually looking after people. And, and also, particularly during the pandemic, I, I, just, I saw that a lot of people wanted to roll over and die in a corner and he wasn't having any of it. And that was the attitude that we tried to have a trigonometry as well. So from from a business point of view, that's kind of how I look at. Um, and, you know, I, I've, I've also, I'm getting to that age and that point where um, I, it, it's going to sound a bit weird and maybe a bit arrogant, but I don't really have heroes anymore. I used to. And now I'm starting to meet some of them. And I kind of go, oh, they're just human beings, just like me. And they're human beings who worked hard and, were creative and whatever. And if I'm working hard and I'm creative, then that I'll do the thing that I'm supposed to do, you know? Um, so, uh, but for me, it was always more about 
you, you know, looking around, and this is what people sometimes don't understand. Um, people look around and they go, okay, Joe Rogan does his podcast like this. Mm-hmm. And this guy does this thing like that. Uh, if I want to be a podcaster, I got to do what Joe Rogan does. And if I want to create a combat sports franchise, I got to do what Dana White does or whatever. It's not how the world works. No one wants to watch the second best Joe Rogan yeah, in the world. Already. Right. You got to look at other people and take small bits from them and integrate that into who you are. Uh, and uh, that's so the mo- it's kind of it's going to sound somewhat contradictory to what we've just been talking about. But the most important thing, and I think the most powerful thing in life is to be authentic to who you are. Mm. Uh, that does not mean that you don't work on your game. These are yeah. separate things. Uh, so with trigonometry, for example, when we started, we looked around at a bunch of people and the bunch was much smaller back then yeah. um, when we started four and a half years ago. But he was like, you know, Joe Rogan has great conversations, mm-hmm. right? Do I think that we could do a three-hour unstructured discussion about anything? Is that what I think people are interested in? I don't think so mm. uh, for me. I really love Joe and I respect the, sh- the shit out of what he's done, but I didn't think that that's, that was me. Yeah. Uh, I'm not the sort of person, like if you sit down with me, we're probably not going to have an unstructured conversation for three hours. Like I've got things I'm interested in and I've got a, a lot of things I couldn't care less about. Joe is way more curious uh, and open-minded like that than I am. Um, he's been down a lot of rabbit holes in his time yeah yeah (laughs) but when you meet him you just go that's his personality this is a dude that's just like interested in everything i'm not like that so for me to pretend to be like that and to sit and listen to someone talk you know mma fighter talking about aliens for an hour like i'd struggle with that i'm there i'm right there i'm all with it when they start (laughs) yeah oh yeah yeah. when it goes off the cliff i'm like yes (laughs) and i pass no judgment on it i'm just saying that's not me right so, and then you look at Joe and you go, you know, he, what he's done is the reason he's so successful is he's incredibly authentic, mm-hmm. right? And that's definitely something that I've always thought from day one, like that's something we got to work on. Cause you, when you start doing it, you can't, you can't just pick up a camera and just suddenly be yourself. Like there's almost nobody in the world who's like that. It's a, it's a skill you work on it. Right. Um, then but I, I also looked at Joe's show and I didn't think that we wanted to replicate that look. We didn't want to have the microphones in front of your face and the headphones, even though that produces better quality sound. I thought it was much better to have a conversation that was, there's nothing in between the people who are sitting down um, and uh, it's more of a chat in that way. Mm. Um, I So there, there was a bunch of people... That's interesting. I hadn't clocked that, that that was a, a thing. Yeah. So I've so I've thought very carefully about that from day one, and and Francis and I were always talking about it. So um, you, you got to take things from different people as inspiration and build your own thing. Uh, otherwise, you're just going to be a, a, an imitation of somebody else, and no one wants to see an imitation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something I'm discovering. Like, obviously, as many podcasters were, the the, the thing that made me want to have have the podcast was I watched like a, an episode of Rogan. It was mm. like holy shit, people have these conversations? Yeah. Like, yeah. These exist? Yeah. It's like, how do I do this? Yeah. Like, um, but now I'm starting to see like how I can make it more, yeah, me, essentially, which is yeah. really cool for me. Well, you don't need to make it more you. You just got to be more you, and mm. then it's going to happen by itself. Yeah. I mean, I just I have an idea of how to make it like fit my personality, I think, at least anyway. Awesome. But that requires I need to get the studio first. I'm still, yes. I'm still looking for the room. Um but yeah, so last question then, because um, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, what advice would you give as an interviewer? Like what would be like a tip or just something that you've learned that you would give as a piece of advice for someone mm. who, yeah. It kind of comes back to what we've just been talking about, which is just ask the questions that you find interesting and don't ever not ask a question that you want to answer to. That's That's been the journey for me is kind of going... I have this question, is it is it wrong, is it offensive, is it this, is it that? And then when you just take that filter off, life gets a lot easier. And then you find out a lot of the people who are watching your show really wanted to hear the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. You know? Is there a question that you regret not asking? Um, no, I, I, I don't really. There the, 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 the should be loads of them. But first of all, I've got a terrible memory, so I don't remember. And also, maybe for that reason, I don't really believe in regret. 
Mm. Um, I, I don't, um, I think regret is just, uh, it's kind of like negative masturbation. It's like you're going over something <laughs> for no benefit. It's kind of the oh. opposite. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Regret, regret. The only, the only useful purpose of the past is to teach you lessons about the future. Right. So once you've taken the lesson out of something, well, what are you going to, you can't change the past. So why would you regret it? Mm. The past is what made you who you are. You got to take the lessons and move on. I I don't really believe in regret. That's a fantastic line on which to end. Um, so man, thanks very much. It's been yeah, an absolute pleasure. Great. I really chat. appreciate it. Thank you very much. No Great chatting with you. Thanks, mate. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. If you want to leave us a comment, that would be awesome. Please like, share, subscribe, and if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.